That is the sound of voters in Kentucky demanding to be let into the one and only polling location in Jefferson County, where Louisville is the county seat during that state's primary elections on Tuesday. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have vo- uh, you have joined us. Uh, that was probably the most dramatic scene on a day where voting went relatively smoothly in Kentucky and North Carolina and in New York. Voters there were eventually let in, and we're hearing that turnout was especially high for a primary in a presidential year. That is, despite all of the changes to the way people are being asked to vote during a global pandemic. Here in Michigan, our Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, is also looking at ways to make sure voters can cast their ballots safely in Michigan and across the country. She's participating in a national campaign called Vote Safe to promote these measures, and she joins us now to talk about it. Jocelyn, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, So let's start with your big takeaways from how Kentucky and North Carolina and New York conducted their primaries this week. I think we are in for lots of news and maybe some turmoil as states go back to the polls in the wake of the pandemic and try to figure out how to make all of this work. What did you think of what we saw? Well, I think you saw a couple of things. One, Kentucky was a great example of um, you know working to quickly implement um, early voting and allowing people to vote by mail without having a reason and just you know freely having a right to vote by mail. A lot of what we basically have built here in Michigan, they replicated in Kentucky, with the exception of one thing. They um, consolidated, as you as you mentioned, precincts. They had only one in Louisville and one in Lexington. And uh, towards the end of the day, a bunch of people showed up. Uh, to one in Louisville, and there was a traffic jam, and so they couldn't get to the actual entrance in time. A candidate had to get a court order to quickly get those doors open. It was quite dramatic, but it really emphasized how you need to have safe in-person voting options that are truly accessible to everyone, particularly in um, urban communities, historically disenfranchised communities, communities without access to public transportation. Um, and so that's you know what we're, we're watching, um, what's happening in other states, good and bad, and using those lessons learned to really continue to bolster our focus on August and November here in Michigan and making sure people can vote safely either from their own home early or in person on Election Day. Hmm. Uh, so talk about Vote Safe, the organization that you're a part of. What is it and what is your involvement uh, in it? Well, I'm grateful that you know it's a, it's a bipartisan effort uh, led by former Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge and former former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm uh, to really try to cut through the rhetoric this year, which is only going to escalate in the months ahead, uh, and, and emphasize to voters there are ways to vote safely this year. You have choices on how to do so, uh, and to really amplify the work we're doing in Michigan, uh, which is one reason I'm a part of it, to make sure that those choices are robust and accessible to every voter, and to push states that don't have those choices to follow suit. These are, you know, time-tested best practices. And and in this, you know, great uncertain moment uh, in this pandemic, we really all have to make sure in every state we're doing everything we can in a nonpartisan way to provide safe voting options for all citizens. Hmm. Uh, So what should Michigan voters expect to see in August and November? We're going to have very limited in-person polling places and rely mostly on mail-in voting. We know that. Um, but what what will this look like? It will will it be comparable to what we're seeing in some of these other states? 
it will be comparable in some ways to what we've experienced already in the two elections we've held in Michigan this year, both of which um, were enormously successful at ensuring people could vote from home safely and securely or vote in person in the same way uh, without having to wait in line. The one thing that people um, who didn't participate in a May a local election, which is a majority of our state, will find differently is if they choose to vote in person, we will have poll workers with PPE, masks, gloves, we'll have other sanitation um, things on hand, uh, particularly in August, but we're prepared to do so in November as well. We'll have social distancing guidelines at the precincts to avoid crowding. And again, we, we have a blueprint for doing this from our May local elections, which we held during the midst of the pandemic uh, and uh, quite successfully demonstrated how you can provide those safe, secure in-person options. But we're also reminding people, if you want to avoid that entirely uh, today, actually, uh, people will begin receiving ballots if they've requested them to vote from home. And you can request a ballot to vote from home on our website at michigan.gov slash vote uh, or through your local clerk or by returning the application that was mailed to you if you're a registered voter. Yeah. So these mailings that you did of, uh, of absentee voter applications to, to every registered voter in the state are a source of controversy. Republican lawmakers, including and especially your predecessor in the Secretary of State's office, they all claim that your statewide mailing of these applications is illegal because they say only local election officials are allowed to send those applications and only to people who request them. I want to give you a chance to talk about why you think what you did is permitted and whether it is this uh, this uh, this measure that we passed in 2018 that makes this possible that changes the ability of the Secretary of State to do this. Right. I mean, really, there's um, there's no legal basis to, to say we don't have the authority. And there's plenty to say that I don't only have the authority, but the responsibility to let voters know how to cast their ballots by mail. It's a new right that voters themselves voted into our Constitution in 2018. Um, so notably, my predecessor was not has not been <laughs> Secretary of State during this change of the law, which is very different. It's a very much a new day for democracy in our state. And, and my, my role has expanded um, prior to what past Secretaries of State may have been because I have a responsibility to implement both of the constitutional amendments that were enacted mm-hmm. last, you know, in November 2018, uh, the redistricting amendment and and the, the um, voting amendment enabling people to vote from home uh, and have a right to do so. So this mailing was something that is especially in the height of this pandemic uh, being done uh, by my my colleagues in other states as well, uh, Republicans and Democrats, to educate citizens about how to vote by mail, um, particularly in this uh, in the height of this pandemic. And notably, there has not been a statewide mailing in our state for nine and a half years. My predecessor never did a statewide mailing, uh, and so we are um, uncovering a lot of um, you know problems that in the list that we inherited, um, things that should have been cleaned up long before I took off. And we're cleaning them up now uh, in lots of different ways. Uh, And I'm happy to talk about them, but I don't want to have gone far too long answering your question. I mean, I want to sort of stay on that subject for a bit. The objection to you mailing absentee ballot applications to voters I, I guess I don't. I don't understand what the problem there would would be. The provision yeah. that we passed in 2018 says that you can now vote absentee with with no with no explanation, with no reason. You don't have to have uh, an extenuating circumstance in order to do that. And so, 
telling people about their ability to do that, which is essentially what you were doing by making that mailing. I don't I don't know what the what the nature of the objection really is, other than to be concerned that more people might actually vote than would have voted in the past. And this is something I think the Republican Party has a real problem with, which is that much of what it is about, much of what it is doing seems to be about voter suppression, discouraging people from knowing what their rights are and discouraging people from exercising those rights. Well, yes, I think that there's a lot of that, you know, and certainly leaders um, of the party um, all the way up to the national level have suggested that if questions, um, you know, security of the elections and all that, and in, in my view, um, not just to achieve, not just to discourage people from participating in the elections, but to discourage, to discourage people from having faith in the outcome as well, which I'm deeply concerned about. And I think, at the end of the day, when I see this chatter and this noise happening in Michigan with, you know, Republican lawmakers and others, just you know, um, not all of them are. I should mention there are a lot of clerks, uh, Republican clerks, who've been extraordinarily supportive, have been a part of our work, who have, um, are, I'm almost in constant contact with. So I don't, you know, want to paint everyone with the same brush, but sure. it has been discouraging to see efforts to really just misinform the public about their rights and to, and to cast uh, seeds of doubt in the process itself, not based on fact, based on innuendo. Uh, and we know a lot of that is, you know, coming, um, you know, from the top. We see that coming from the president as well. Um, and, and, and having to push back on that to ensure all of our voters, regardless of who they vote for, are fully educated on their rights and have faith in the process um, is really going to be the bulk of my job for you know the next four months. And you know, is, this mailing is part of that to make sure everyone knows their rights. I should mention that part of the reason this was so important for us to do this statewide mailing um, was because a lot of organizations like the state Republican Party and a lot of clerks on both sides of the aisle were mailing out our planning to mail out applications. Mm. And I wanted to make sure uh, that everyone got an application and everyone had an equal chance and equal information on how to request to vote by mail, that it wouldn't depend on where you live or what list you may or may not be on, that everyone would have that shot. And that to me is, you know, again, underscores not just the the authority I have to do that as a statewide election official, but uh, as a state chief election official, but also, again, responsibility to make sure everyone has an equal opportunity to vote in our state. Yeah. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this next point, uh, but but I do want to give you a chance to address the, uh, the feud that some people are describing, I guess, that is going on between you and Ruth Johnson, who was a former secretary of state. Uh, she was pretty upset when you went to her committee and only agreed to take one question. What do you have to say about all of that? And do you plan to go back and take more questions from lawmakers about your plans for August and November? Yes. I, I spent two hours before the committee in the fall in October, I think it was. And um, when they invited me back in June, we they gave me a few dates. I said, you know, I think we said we could do 30 minutes on this date and they agreed to it. So it was actually a little frustrating that all of a sudden they weren't OK with it after they they were. Um, but again, we said, OK, we'll come back again. And we're doing that, I think, at the end of July. Uh, and I think there, there, it's becoming a part of me where, I mean, just speaking candidly, I was a little hesitant to kind of continue to give um, credence to um, what I think is is becoming a little bit of um, an abuse of authority and a, a bit of um, you know too much um, misinformation, you know, using a position to, to circulate misinformation and cause people to fear elections and 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 cast out on on the process itself, which is quite secure. 
Um, so there's a part of me that that is hesitant to continue to, to validate that. But I also believe in accountability. I'm happy to answer questions, as, as you know, and as people who've known me for a long time. No, I think the other thing, though, that is really, frankly, most frustrating about all this is there's so much legislation we need this committee to actually, like, talk about and mm. have hearings on and, and enact. And, you know, in, in all its, its time in existence, they've passed one piece of legislation over the objection of, of State Senator Johnson. And we have, you know, plenty of pieces of legislation, including important legislation that would give clerks more time to process ballots uh, and, and make our elections more secure that they're not talking about, that they're not holding hearings on. So I'm happy to talk with them, but I just also want them to do their jobs uh, and to pass the important legislation that clerks and others have called them on to do. And, and hopefully that they will do that in the four months we have leading up to November's election. And, and we should note that for listeners who don't know that. Former Secretary of State Ruth Johnson is now a state senator, and she happens to chair the Senate Elections Committee, which puts her in the position of overseeing, at least from a legislative perspective, the operations of the office that she used to be in charge of. That is a deeply unusual set of circumstances. And and I think as much as anything, it is those circumstances that lead us to these kinds of tensions, I guess, that are that are that are cropping up. I don't really remember this happening before. And it's you know, it's so unfortunate because I would love to have her as a collaborator. I would love to, you know, have her share her thoughts and and views and actually I mean, think how much we could get done if we were actually, you know, working in concert with each other and and I think that to me at the end of the day is is what I hope maybe in the future could happen or with future chairs of the committee. Um, because I strongly believe in bipartisan leadership. I strongly believe that, you know, in, in, in collaboration and, and coming together to solve problems. And we try to do that. I, you know, did outreach at, at the beginning. It, it fell short. And now here we are. So um, I remain hopeful. <laughs> but I also know politics. And look, we're four months out of a, you know, very tense presidential election cycle. And I, I know, you know, um, this is part of what you sign up for. And um, but I, I, you know, would, would love an opportunity to collaborate with the committee and other lawmakers to actually make things better for all of our citizens and, and work together instead of this silliness. OK, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Michigan's Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. We're going to talk specifically about the semifinalists for Michigan's new redistricting commission being chosen next yesterday. Uh, We'll also talk about the announcement this week that inmates will be automatically registered to vote upon release. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Uh, Jocelyn, I'm going to change the subject here and talk about what happened yesterday. 200 semifinalists were randomly chosen to maybe serve on Michigan's new redistricting commission. Talk about how that process is going and the things that you think are most notable about this group of 200 people. 
Yeah, it was an extraordinarily exciting day to actually see, uh, and, and folks can, can view it it's still online at redistrictingmichigan.org, the actual selection of the 200 semifinalists. Amazingly, we had close to 10,000 people apply. Uh, that, that's significantly higher than those who applied to serve on the California Commission, which is a wow. state four times our size. Yeah. And uh, and the the pool of, of 200 semifinalists was diverse. Uh, you know, eight, eight people from all of our counties, every single one of the 83 counties applied to serve on this commission, which also underscores just the extraordinary enthusiasm citizens have for kind of taking back the power of drawing district lines. And um, yeah, we, we um, I'm I'm proud of you know the months of work that we've put into to really develop a system where people would see the, the true randomness of the selection. I think there are a lot of concerns about how people would be selected, and it is truly random. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, yeah, we, we did that yesterday. We have it on video so people can see that. And now the 200 semifinalists will be given to the legislature, where the quadrant leaders can each, um, each strike up to five. Uh, and the remaining 180 will go into another drawing later this summer, uh, in which um, – Four Republicans, four Democrats, and five unaffiliated uh, will be chosen, and they will be the 13 commissioners who will have a year to draw our next congressional, state legislative, and state senate districts. So, so I caught some of what was going on yesterday, and and one one thing that I noticed was how hard it was to come up with this list of 200. You were running, I guess, simulations uh, that that were selecting. Uh, people uh, to be on this list, and if if it wasn't quite right, it was rejected, and you would go and do it again. At the point I was watching yesterday, it, it, you were on try number one thousand, uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and, well, and I don't know which which try ended up uh, producing the list, but but that's a lot of times to really try to get it right. Well, the constitutional language was very strict, and, and really all we've done is 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 try to be as as you know as close to the language as possible uh, in you know uh, saying that the there had to be statistical weighting involved to ensure that you had um, that same proportion of Republican, Democrat, and unaffiliated um, applicants represented in the 200 uh, that that um, that were ultimately selected. So that was part of it. And then you also ha- also required that the 200 represent uh, the uh, gender, race, age, and geographic demographics of the state. So the the tries were ones where um, that that were rejected were ones that didn't meet those. Um, the, the random selection didn't meet all of those um, requirements, mm. uh, and and so it wasn't until and it is really amazing that 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 statisticians can set up a system of an algorithm that will ultimately run enough times until you have something that hits all of the of the benchmarks. And if you look at the um, the ultimate 200, you have the 80 uh, 40 40, I think it is, or something like that of uh, the proportion of of people representing different groups and you know different party affiliations and mm-hmm. also different um, geographic uh, you know we have people from all the way up in the UP we have people all around the state people of various different backgrounds it was really encouraging to see so um, it's a you know it's it's a um, it, an algorithm that was that was dictated to us by the constitutional language that voters enacted mm. Uh, I want to talk also about uh, something else that happened this week. You and the Michigan Department of Corrections announced that you will automatically issue a state ID to all inmates who finish their sentences, which also automatically registers them to vote. Talk about that decision and why you feel it's important. 
Yeah, and meeting with um, business leaders in particular, as well as community leaders uh, throughout the state, um, throughout my time in office, um, but but especially now in this moment that we're in, where um, we have this national reckoning of our history and the need to ensure um, true equity and equality um, in our criminal justice system and in our society. Uh, this was, uh, you know, to be able to do this right now uh, and ensure that returning citizens would essentially have access to, you know, the full rights of reintegration into society, uh, which all the data shows is is what is important and what is needed uh, to not only re- reduce recidivism, promote safety, but really, you know, encourage um, these, you know, returning citizens to be full parts of our communities, uh, giving people IDs, um, helping restore people's driver's licenses, and through that process also registering them to vote uh, was um, you know, a critical component of that reintegration. So we partnered with the Department of Corrections uh, and, uh, and uh, to, to put this in place, I'm really proud of it because it will ensure really that people, um, as they return to society, know their rights and have their tool, the tools in place, their ID, the driver's license, in order to, to be able to get a job, go to work. Uh, and become, you know, active members of our society. Um, One of the things here that I think is really key is awareness and knowledge. I mean, it's -hmm. it's a pretty common myth about people who have been sent to prison that somehow they lose their rights to vote, which is not true here in, in the state of Michigan. We've had inmates call this show before and talk about the fact that they think they can't vote yeah. um and yeah. so that so you you're not only sort of changing i guess the process here but but really kind of raising awareness even among the population that's affected uh, about how this is supposed to work yeah, I mean, I, I voter education, and as we've already talked about earlier, is, is such a key component of my job in our office, and this is another ex- example of that, that um, I have had conversations, and we just announced initiative to have even more conversations with communities all across the state where people are not voting, to just go and listen and say, you know, what can we do better and what's not working and, and how can we get you engaged? And the, the number one thing that has come up in these conversations in rural communities, and I mean, you know, I've been to Jackson, to Sturgis, at parts of Detroit and Flint, all across the state, people say, well, I can't vote because of my criminal history. Um, it's the number one thing I hear in these conversations, and that's not true. You can, you have a right to vote in Michigan regardless of your criminal history, and that right to vote is restored. The only time you can't vote is when you're in prison serving a sentence, and that right to vote is restored automatically upon anyone uh, leaving uh, prison, and that's, again, why this initiative was so important to make sure every citizen, every eligible citizen in our state knows their rights uh, and to really debunk common myths that have been um, in many ways discouraged people from exercising their voice and and and, and passing their ballot um, for a, for a long time now what is the potential number of people here that you're talking about I mean there there are of course we have a very large incarcerated population here in in Michigan this would add uh, I think pretty significantly to voter rolls yeah it's sort of two things one the returning citizens as well that there's you know are in the thousands uh, and you also have which we're going to start focusing on as well local um, prisons and and others to you know this is just the statewide um, Department of Corrections that we're focusing on so we're going to continue to you know build this and uh, build this out as, as we move forward but the other the larger number um, are the 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 hundreds of thousands of citizens who believe they can't vote because 
you know, of everything from, you know, an unpaid parking ticket, which sometimes they're told through misinformation, mm. um, or to, you know, being on parole or probation or, or having something, you know, some sort of aspect of their past in which they've been engaged in the law and, and, um, or, or some aspect of criminal history in their past. All of those citizens can vote. And so part of this effort as well is to really, you know, debunk that myth that people can't vote based on their criminal history, that we're a state where you can vote even if you're on parole or probation, uh, and to make sure every citizen knows that so the no citizen is, is um, you know, unduly suppressed uh, because of that misinformation. Yeah. Um, I, before we have to end, I, I want to talk a little about cybersecurity uh, mm-hmm. in the election and whether we are going to have real challenges uh, there. That's something that we're talking about in lots of other states as well. Yeah. And uh, yes, I think it, we, you know, we've been spending a lot of focus and, and uh, time, uh, particularly over the past six months, preparing to run elections in the midst of a pandemic and all that that entails. Uh, and that maintain, that that continues to be, you know, a, 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 an ongoing issue for our preparation for August and November. But the issues of cybersecurity that have been omnipresent throughout my tenure and in past elections as well continue to escalate. And the Department of Homeland Security has really been supportive um, at helping us build out systems to secure our voter file, to um, secure our voting systems. And we just uh, ran the state's first ever risk-limiting audit statewide, um, where 80 of our 83 counties participated in um, in confirming the results of our March presidential primary, uh, which enables us to, again, make sure our machines have uh, are accurately counting our ballots. So we're putting the provisions in place that are needed to preserve um, the, the security of our system uh, in, in advance of this fall's elections. Uh, but, the, but I'll also emphasize, uh, in my view, one of the biggest challenges for securing our elections, and this gets back to you know, what we were talking about before the break, mm-hmm. is also securing our elections against the, the efforts to hack the voters' mind and confuse them about their rights and, and the sanctity of our process. And I'm not talking about, you know, local elected officials. I'm talking about, like, the concerted efforts on social media um, that that are, you know, promulgated by foreign adversaries and domestic bad actors um, uh, who are, you know, trying to, um, you know, cause and, and seeds of doubt about the security of the process that aren't true. And so part of our work to secure our elections is not just actually securing our elections, but ensuring the public, our citizens, have faith in their the security of their vote amidst efforts that are going to escalate in the months ahead to cause them to to doubt the security of the process. And we'll continue to fight back on those efforts, but it's all hands on deck to ensure all voters know the truth about their rights and the, the, um, you know, the security of our system. Okay. Jocelyn Benson, Michigan Secretary of State. Always great to have you here to talk through these issues with us. Thanks very much for being here today. Always a pleasure, Stephen. Thanks so much. All right. We will talk with you soon. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow for an in-depth look at the controversy over facial recognition technology here in Detroit. And we will have a conversation with CEO of Citizen Detroit, Sheila Cockrell, about democracy, police brutality, protests, and more. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.